Hi, Brendan. Thanks for being on the channel with me today. Hi, hi. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad we can uh, finally were able to make this work. It's been a bit of back and forth, but thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. No, it's awesome. I'm so glad to have you on today. So can you please just tell us about yourself a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is Brendan, um, or on, on Instagram, Whiskey Blender, Whiskey with no E, Blender with no E. Um, I am a uh, distiller, blender, brewer, jack of all trades in that sense. Um, originally, I started off as a brewer in Canada at uh, Driftwood Brewing Company, and then got my way into the, the craft distilling world through in Scotland and then into blending uh, Scotch, Scotch malt whiskey at uh, Brown Foreman's distilleries, Glendronic, Benriac, and Glenglassa. And as of a month and a half ago, I'm back in Canada uh, starting a distillery with the team from Driftwood and we will be releasing um, some pretty incredible stuff in, in the near future. Well, that's quite the resume you have yeah. there. Yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been a fun journey, learning lots and getting to taste a lot of good products, so can't complain. Yeah, so can you tell us how you initially got into brewing and then made the move to Scotland? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think kind of a an alternative way to get into it, you see a lot of people these days are, you know, doing the right thing, they're going to school, learning all the science behind everything and getting their, their foot into breweries and distilleries that way. I did not do that. <laughs> I was at university um, studying history because I was going to go to law school and that was my plan and that's what was happening. <laughs> and to, to pay my way through school, I was working at um, a bar, a brew pub in Victoria, Canada called Canoe Brew Pub. And we had a, a master uh, brewer there named, by the name of Sean Hoyne, uh, who after a few years of working together at Canoe, he ended up opening his own brewery called Hoyne Brewery in Victoria. And we brought in a new brewmaster named Dan Murphy. Dan Murphy came to us from Lighthouse, and when Dan was starting, I was kind of saw an opportunity to maybe learn more about brewing and just asked him if there was anything I could do in the cellar to, to help out and make his job easier. If you've ever been to Canoe, you'll, you'll notice they sell a lot of beer, and it's a lot of work for, for one brewer. So he, yeah, like, took me under his wing and taught me a few things about brewing, and I was like, oh, this is, this is a lot of fun. But when I graduated university, I was like, I've got to go to the oil fields or something to make some money before I go to law school. And I told Dan, I was like, Hey Dan, won't be able to help you out on weekends anymore. And he just kind of planted the seed in my head of, well, you know what you should do is you should give the guys at Driftwood Brewing a shout. They might, they might be hiring. And I was a little intimidated. I'd never brewed beer before. You know, I'd been in the cellar and all of that, but uh, Driftwood was just approaching, I think their five year anniversary. They were making some pretty killer beers. So a little apprehensive, but I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go over there and, you know, put my name in the hat and see what happens. And ended up having a beer with with those guys, and they offered me a brewing position. And I was just like, guys, like I don't know how to brew. <laughs> is, is that okay? And they're like, oh, absolutely, we'll teach you. So they got me started on you know scrubbing kegs and then filling kegs, and then I got onto the bottling line of filling bottles, and then I was loading bottles, and then through the cellar, and ended up getting into the brew house, and I brewed there for five years. Um, we got to play with sours, lots of different styles of beers, which was a ton of fun, and kind of when I was brewing and like knowing about my bartending and background from at canoe, I was like, you know what I'm kind of really interested in is um, spirits and whiskey in particular. And I had heard rumors around town that people might have a couple stills uh, in Canada. For those of you that don't know, home distilling is not legal yet. <laughs> um, yet. Hopefully one day it will be. Uh, and ended up finding my way uh, into some access of a little 
uh, home still, a little still dragon 50 liter still and started playing on that and making some whiskeys and then some vodkas and then well, vodkas, some neutral to, to then make gin. And as I was doing this, I was like, man, this is a lot more fun than brewing. <laughs> like I can have so much control. It's just such a cool process. Um, and my family's originally from Scotland. So I was looking for, you know, I wanted to get more experience in distilling. So I was looking around the province of British Columbia, which back in 2014, 2015, there weren't many craft distilleries or just distilleries in general. So wasn't able to find, find a role here that made sense. And I was like, well, I've got family in Scotland. I'm allowed to work and live in Scotland. Let's just see if I can get a job over there. So literally just Googled distilleries in Scotland and just started finding any email I could and was just like, hi, like this is my background, please hire me. And I sent hundreds. I wish I knew the, the total number, but hundreds of emails to distillers. Most of them went unanswered. A couple of them were like, thanks. Uh, you know, we'll keep you in mind. Had a few interviews with some places, but just my inability to just go over for an interview always hindered me. And then I um, got an email back from someone who was like, hey, like you've got a really similar background to me. Would you be interested in an interview? And I was like, yeah, for sure. Like, where is your distillery? And they're like, oh, we're in Glasgow. And I was like, perfect like Glasgow's in Scotland my family was from Glasgow like this this would work oh wow yeah yeah, I got on an interview with them and it ended up like going really well and they offered me a role and it was three weeks after getting offered that position that I ended up in Scotland working for them and so that that distillery was able to make um three different types of malts we sorry we had a single malt like an unpeated single malt we had a peated malt we did a triple distilled uh we made a vodka Mm -hmm a bunch of gins, including oak aged gins. And then uh, just as I was leaving, we were also making rum. So spiced rum and uh, aged rum. So that was a really good experience getting to get my hands into a lot of different categories. And then while I was there, I was kind of eyeing to come back to Canada at that point. And I just saw a job posting for uh, to work as master blender like Rachel Berry the master blender um for Brown Foreman so Glenn Drawing yeah. and Glenn Glassa she was looking she was looking for an assistant blender and I was looking through the job resume or like requirements and it's like you must have gone to the you have the science background and have gone to Harriet Watt and I was like oh man I don't have any of this <laughs> like I've just been you know on the wrenches <laughs> brewing beer and all of that And I was like, well, I already don't have the job. What's the worst thing that can happen if I apply? I don't get the job, you know, no skin off my back. So threw a resume in, not going to say I forgot about it, but kind of just dismissed it. I was preparing to go on a camping trip and then moving back to Canada. And I got an interview for the job and I was like, oh, this is perfect. Interview went well. And I was like, well, you know, there's a lot of very good candidates out there. This is a very good job. Probably won't hear back. got a third second interview and same thing and then a third interview and I was like oh like huh and then Rachel yeah it was like uh big big snowstorm in Glasgow in in all of Scotland this must have been 2017 and like the whole country was essentially shut down and I'm sitting there like walking my way into work and I get a call from Rachel being like would you want to come (laughs) come come be my assistant I was like oh absolutely so yeah I jumped at that opportunity and yeah I was been very fortunate to work with Rachel on uh, Glendronic Benriak and Glenglassa and just just recently we released re-released a um, the Benriak core range so Benriak we totally redesigned the full the full range uh from the 10s the 12s 
uh, the 21, 25, and 30-year-old, and then a lot, of, a lot of tidbits along the way and got to play with a lot of single cask selection there as well. And then just recently in the past few months, like I mentioned uh, earlier, I've made my way back to Canada with my partner, and we are back living on Vancouver Island, and I'm in the process with the, the Driftwood guys, the, kind of where it all started, uh, opening a distillery with them where we plan to release... Uh, rye whiskey, uh, malt whiskey, a, a bourbon style, can't obviously call it bourbon uh, here in Canada, uh, gins, and then a, a plethora of other of other things, kind of the, the world's my oyster when it comes to the spirit styles there. So really looking uh, forward to what's next. Wow, that's very cool. I hope I can visit you on the island sometimes. Yeah, soon. absolutely. You'll have to get over and, and, see, and see the site. And we're building a brand new tasting room, massive tasting room with a little bit of a restaurant there. So you can come over and do the Spirits flight, see what everything's about, and then have some food as well, and see the new see the new space. It'd be great to have you over. Mm-hmm. Well, Brendan, I'm sure like a lot of people that are listening in right now are like super inspired by your story, since you don't have any like brewing or distilling uh, education, formal education, but yeah. then you managed to work at several distilleries in Scotland just by sending emails, which is very similar to what <laughs> I did. So. Yeah, because people do send me like messages sometimes and they're like, how hard is it to get a job in a distillery in the UK? So now they know like, oh, I just sent emails and you just sent a bunch of emails. And I think that what comes into an end, you would know it just just as well, because I think when we spoke, I think you ended up uh, bouncing out to a couple other distilleries. But a lot of it is just confidence and courage that, you know, what people will say, no, it's just like, oh, well, like, move on and try someone else. Because I think in this industry, there's a lot of people who are into it. A lot of people are passionate. And if your passion comes through and you just reach out, you know, something, something will click. So just, yeah, yeah. Keep at it. And something will always kind of find its way to you. I find if you're putting out the right, putting out the right vibes and doing the right things, the opportunities will come. Yeah, because I know when I like was sending emails to distilleries, I specifically didn't contact any distilleries that were under like Diageo or Brown Foreman because I thought like, oh, they're such big companies. Uh, They're going to want that formal education. Like you said, like in their requirements, they usually ask for some kind of Harriet Watt or IBD training, which I didn't have at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And that's the thing is I think, what I learned was like, oh, those are suggestions. And if you come in and like, I, um, it's not like I went in with no experience. I had a lot of, you know, on the ground and I learned from incredible brewmasters and, uh, distillers. So, you know, learning through experience versus learning through school, I, you know, was able to parlay that, I guess, into a job, but yeah, don't, don't ever be put off a job recommendation because you think you might not be qualified. I think, the worst, worst thing they do is say no. Uh, and that's not that bad. So oh yeah, it just go for it. It's kind of my, my, my thought on that. Yeah. Well, very cool. So I'm sure a lot of people are very interested in your time at Brown Foreman. So what did you do there? Absolutely. So I was brought on as the assistant blender. Uh, so what that means is that Rachel Berry was the master blender uh, for all three distilleries. And if you don't know who Rachel Berry is, Rachel I always like to say that if there was a Mount Rushmore of whiskey, uh, Rachel would be on it twice. <laughs> Rachel worked uh, for Glenmorangie, Ardbeg, um, Auchentosh, and she's got an incredible resume, and she's worked with some of the best malts uh, in the world and a lot of my favorite malts. And so when she was brought to Brown Foreman, uh, 
to oversee Benry at Glendronic and Glen Glass. So it kind of, you know, shook the whiskey world a little bit. It's like, oh, like big things are coming here. And so when she looked was looking for an assistant, I was all over that opportunity. The three distilleries, you know, they had been all varied histories where they were shut down, reopened. So the stocks were, you know, up, up and down, uh, Glen Glass, especially like not many people know about that malt, but it's an absolutely beautiful distillery. The first time I had heard of it, they had actually released a, an expression. It's actually, I think I might have one here. It was, um, yeah, just PX, PX finishes. Uh, they did a PX finish, a port finish. And I just saw that on the master of Malta website in the UK. And, I was like, oh, like this distillery, they're doing all of these cast type finishes and someone who wants to learn. I'm like, it's pretty interesting. I'd like to know what all of these cast types are like individually and purchase them. I was like, these are really good. <laughs> and so, yeah. So when Rachel had that opportunity, I was like, oh, absolutely going to jump on it. And so what my daily job looked like was first uh, looking at the new make spirit. So the spirit that comes off the still and just understanding where we were at. So we did a lot of new make analysis for the three distilleries and identifying trends and looking at our peated spirit and our triple distilled at Ben Riek. And then from that, you know, we're working on our wood profile of what does the spirit, what kind of wood should the spirit go into? Uh, so then we were, you know, analyzing all of the casts that we had. So looking at our color, writing tasting notes, monitoring ABV, and then we would use that information to help form our bottlings, like for the Glendronic 12 year old, which has, you know, no color added or anything like that. So we just want to make sure that we're getting the right color from the casks and we're picking the right casks to maintain a to maintain a consistent product and then with the Ben Riek range we were had the existing range but as we knew we were making new ones pulling all these new sam cask samples and working on blends and different ratios of different cast types and do we inject peat into this one or not and, and working with that to create a new range and then a new identity for that distillery so very varied you're doing new make analysis you're doing cask analysis, you're working on forecasting on the computers, you're, you know, you're reporting your, your findings to justify, you know, the casks that you want to buy, and then you're maintaining the quality of your bottles. And I think the best way to think of it is, you are a steward of these brands. And that's what I really like about whiskey is that, you know, when you were working, you know, in a distillery, and you're putting malt whiskey down, that's going to be used by someone in 12, 20 years down the road. So the whiskey that we were looking at, you know, that was from 25 years ago, or in the case of some of the stuff from Glen Glass, that was from the 1960s. So the yeah. person who's put that down, you know, I'm, I'm seeing the work that they've done. And so it's, it's a really interesting thing to, to be a steward of a brand, knowing the work that we are doing is really just continuing on what those have done before us. And so very rewarding experience in that sense. Okay. So do you have to do like a lot of work in the lab do, lab then to do the testing? Yeah, I'd say most, most of my time is probably spent in the, in the lab. So either we had a, a lab, so we had a bottling hall. So we had three distilleries. Um, they were up north and we had a bottling hall, which was near Edinburgh. And so my office is in, was in Edinburgh. Uh, and so all the samples would come to me there and we would do the analysis in the, in the lab there and then we had a little blenders lab as well which was just kind of for the the blending aspect of it so a lot a lot of time in the lab measuring color abv and all of that okay and so like i don't know anything about blending really so what do you do to come up with a recipe so i think yeah there's a world's your oyster essentially so what you do is for for a core product so something that's established so glendronic Glendronic 12 Sherry. It's one of the best sherried malts you can get. If you haven't had it, I recommend getting a bottle. <laughs> um, 
And so what with what we're doing with that is we're just blending. We want to make sure that we're selecting casks from different age dates. So as you do your new make analysis through the year, you'll notice that even though your ingredients remain the same, the people making it remain the same, the the atmosphere, the terroir of the of the area is changing how that whiskey is fermenting, distilling through the year. So you are getting a little bit different notes from that new make spirit in January than you would in say September. So when you're doing a bottling of a Glendronic 12 year old, a, a core product, you want to make sure you're selecting casks from throughout the year to maintain that character that you're expecting in a 12 year old. So when you're blending for a core product, it's just about making sure you're, you're consistent and the flavor matches, you know, the, 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 the malts before the releases before it, um, which is, which is fun. It can be, you know, challenging at times if you're stock deficient and certain, you know, if you had shutdowns and all of that, but it's a, it's a fun challenge and you've got very set goalposts when you're blending for something like Ben Riek's new core range, where it's just do what you want. <laughs> um, it's, it's a little intimidating in the sense, Oh, there's so many options. And Ben Riek is, um, probably I'd say the most experimental distillery uh, in Scotland. They've got a history of triple distilled malt into the 90s. They've peated malt from the 80s, uh, unpeated malt. So not many distilleries were experimenting to the extent that Ben Riek has for as long as Ben Riek has. Nowadays, it's common to see everyone doing kind of everything, but Ben Riek's been doing it for such a long time. So we have all of these, you know, tools in our shed and it's how, what are we going to build and how are we going to do it? And so for that, what I like to think of is, you know, yes, cast types are important and definitely, but it's, it's listening to the spirit. What does the spirit want to go into? Uh, and so where does like, what shines about Ben Riek? So how do we bring forward those orchard fruits? So what you're doing then is you're finding cast types that complement the distillery character, which that orchard fruits, it just very juicy, delicious space I mall. And you're picking casts that help amplify that character but are unique in their own sense so you do have to understand what everyone else is doing so you want to make a malt that's unique to you but also true to your spirit you know we don't want to go in and just put everything in heavy heavy sherry and then just say oh there we go because that's not true to what that spirit wants to do i'm sure it would be good <laughs> but we want it to be uniquely benriac so you're playing with the levels of that to make sure that the distillery character shines through and is complemented by the wood rather than the wood dominating it and then you're working on just a progression. So the way I like to describe the new Ben Riek range is if you're walking from a valley up the bend, up the mountain, so the 10-year-old's a little bit lighter. And then as you work your way up through the 12, you're like, oh, it's just a lot more dark fruits. This is wonderful. And you get to the 21 and it's like you're, you're kind of starting to see over the valley, a little bit more refined fruits. It's, and then when you work your way up to the 30, they're seeing everything. There's so much flavor. It's like a hint of peat that's just mellowed into these tropical fruits. So it is this journey. And what you want to do when you're blending is make sure that that journey stays true uh, to the form of the distillery and that it's, yeah, a unique expression in itself. <laughs> Okay, so you helped to develop this uh, new range, right? You yeah, said at Benrio. Yeah. Um, and then, how do you decide when it's good enough? Like, who makes those decisions on the flavor? So when we like decide, like, a, so a recipe. So what we would do is essentially, I'd go into the lab and and play with a bunch of different, you know, kind of variations. And Rachel would have some ideas, and so I'd go and make those ones, and we'd look, and so we'd put them all out, and we'd look, and we would go through. And you just kind of sense check and you kind of figure out where, where you want to be. And, you know, we've got, we've got whiskey panels at work as well. And then because Brown Foreman's um, 
such a big company. Brown Foreman's the, the same company that owns Jack Daniels. We have a giant lab in the U.S. and they've got a full spirits, 60 persons like tasting panel. So we can set, yeah, so we can send we can send samples to them and have them kind of map them out. You know, we won't tell them what they are and we'll see kind of where people are going. Uh, but for the most part, Rachel and I are looking at our wood inventory and knowing our tastes and what we think the consumer will like. And we're slowly kind of whittling it down when we get into a kind of when you're close to the finish line, that's when we'll start, you know, playing with the minutia of percents and then the ABV as well. And that's when you're starting to look with what ABV makes the most sense for this expression. And you're thinking about flavor first and foremost and quality. And then you're thinking about, you know, where, where is this going? You know, what, what are people going to want? Do they want a very high ABV whiskey or is this going to be a lighter whiskey that, you know, maybe they want a little bit lower ABV and it's, maybe intended for having in a cocktail or something like that. So these are all things that you're thinking about as you final in on that final recipe. And when you have that final recipe, there is no, Oh yeah. Like this, this is it. This is right. It just, it just clicks. It just, it's instantly like you have it and you're like, poof, this is it. it blows you away. Um, usually my tasting notes when I do it, like I've got a, like I'd have a, a little book here and it'll just be like, I'll be doing something and it will just, like I'll just put like a, like a smiley face emoji or something. I'll be like, yeah, nope, that's it. Like, this is the one <laughs> that's how we know. And uh, yeah, you just, when you have it, you know, and I think that's the best way and kind of the art of blending is um, you just know. <laughs> okay. And uh, how long was that process to develop a new recipe from start <clears throat> to finish? I think a year and a half, probably yeah, a little bit longer from like, conception um, of like, this is what we're going to do. And then a year and a half of like very focused uh, recipe development. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So a fun, a very fun process. <laughs> getting yeah. getting paid to sample and drink whiskey is a very, very good job. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs> oh, gosh. And then, um, so your new... Yeah, uh, this new recipe. When is it on in stores? It's out. Or it's out now. So if you're in, uh, well, if you're in the United States, should be at all all of your retailers. If you're in British Columbia, uh, you can go to the British Columbia liquor stores there. There and some specialist retailers. If you're in uh, the United Kingdom, Europe, emerging Asia, or uh, like Australia, it should also be pretty much everywhere. So you can look for it. It's a uh, beautiful blue eggshell uh, bottles. Um, uh, yeah, Ben Rick. 10, smoky 10, 12, smoky 12, and then the core range will be a little bit, or sorry, the, the aged range will be more at specialists, and that's the 21, 25, and the 30. Okay. And but which ones it. were the ones that you, so with, all, like the new recipe? All, all of them, all of them. So we completely oh, did the new range. Yeah, yeah, and so there's going to be, not sure if the other two have been released yet, so we'll tease them. There are going to be a couple other ones that come there. <laughs> that find their way through to the uh, distillery shop as well. So if you're in Scotland, definitely go check out the new, new Ben Riek tasting range. But yeah, that full new range um, was kind of the, the work of, of, of Rachel. And then with, you know, I got obviously help out on there for the past uh, year and a half. So very happy to see that um, on shelves. Do people get like super impressed when they, you tell them you're like a whiskey blender? I was at, the store the other day and I don't think they believed me because I, I, I was picking up some uh, Glen Glass because I wanted to show people at home and stuff so I went and I was like grabbed a bunch and they're like oh yeah like what do you know about these I'm like oh I made them and they just like look at me and they're like what is this guy what is this guy smoking <laughs> um, so yeah I know really really fun and yeah it's always rewarding to see your products on the shelf and see people tasting it for the first time is always nice and we did a 
when we relaunched that, uh, Ben Reich got to do a tasting in Edinburgh. And it was really fun just to watch people kind of have it for the first time. Uh, very rewarding to see, yeah, see how people enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so for the Ben Reich, after you blended it, does it go into the bottle or like back into a cask to marry? Yeah, so there's a bit of, bit of both. So we would kind of uh, blend it for bottling and then, the, you know, a portion of that might go back into cask uh, to be saved for the next blending of, of that expression. Okay. Um, I just want to head over to, I have some subscriber questions that I want to ask you. Perfect. So John Hardy asks, I'm interested about the cuts. These whiskeys get a long barrel maturation cycle and thus deeper into the fuel tails or not? So it's a great question and every distillery will be different. So how far you go into your, your faints, your, 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 your tails, that's definitely going to declare decide what your spirit character is. And so for every distillery will be different. Some distilleries where you want a lighter spirit, you'll have a very narrow cut. When I worked at that first distillery in Scotland, what we actually did was started designing our cut points for at different times of the year for different styles of whiskey. So as a new distillery, we knew that we would want to be able to release something at three years old, five years old, and then stuff that we definitely wanted to sit for eight, 12, 15, 20 years. And so we started adjusting our cut points there. So for the, the spirits that we wanted to be released fairly soon, we were doing pretty narrow cuts. And then for the spirits that we wanted to age out in our peated whiskey, we were going a little bit deeper. And then we knew that those ones would be would be saved for, for a longer maturation. So absolutely, you can use that to, to decide your distillery character. And around when do you make the cuts? Or are you not allowed to say? Uh, it totally depends on each on each distillery. Some some distilleries, um, you know, are, are very high, you know, in the high 60s. I think McAllen's really, really narrow up. I'm going to say that they're actually nearer 70. Some, some places go down as low as 55-ish. Um, so yeah, we were kind of in between those points kind of deal. So definitely not that high and not quite that low. Uh, so just, yeah, kind of in that range of the, of the sweet spot of, of your hearts. Okay. Thank you. All right. So next question from Vial B2. What were some technical differences between these distilleries in terms of making product? So the material, stills, base grain, aging process, uh, and what was different working from one to another? Absolutely. And that's a great question. And I think that's something that really drew me to the role <clears throat> rather than working for one distillery and having that as the one focus was the ability to have three distilleries to play with and, and to learn and understand each one. So in Scotland for single malt, we, essentially all the distilleries are getting their malt and their yeast from the same sources. So those were kind of constant. So those raw ingredients were constant. What really gives you your character difference in single malt will be the design of your stills. So the shape of your stills, your fermentation time, your fermentation vessels, and then just where you're located. If you were to take Glendronic where it's sitting right now, and if you were to move it up the hill with all the same equipment, the same people, the same ingredients, the same water, it would change. So it's very much a sense of place. The place is an ingredient while creating this whiskey. Um, and so understanding that, and understanding how that's reacting and forming the new make spirit, that's where you get to come in and that's where your wood plan comes in. So what is your wood strategy for each distillery? So, you know, Glendronic is a very old world malt. So it's 
sherry, you know, old world wines. That's a very, that's a ethos. That's the ethos of Glen, what Glendronic is. It's a very bass heavy spirit, like old saxophone shaped stills into those deep, deep casks. Glenglass is on the sea. It's a coastal malt, very expressive. Uh, pineapple, guava, <laughs> incredible. So, so casks swing a little bit more. We've got, you know, rum, red wine, things that you would expect with those flavors. And then Ben Riek, it's right at the, you know, right in space side and it's just it's so malleable it, it works well with so many things uh, which is why it's you know been why they have the triple distilled the the unpeated the own maltings which is an incredible expression and and the peated malt so with with that distillery it's it's managing different cast types to to express that distillery's um character the most so yeah you're you're using understanding the sense of place as an ingredient i guess the uh, the building itself the facility and then your wood plan would be the the main kind of components that we get to shape and form. Okay. And like, a, what is the wood plan for Cass? Yeah. So what you're working on is just understanding what you want your, your bottled spirit to be and how many casts are you bringing in? So are you going to use mainly, you know, bourbon casks? Are you going to use virgin oak? So, you know, a, a cast that has not seen bourbon yet, are you going to use, Sherry casks, if so, what type of sherry? Are you using uh, Pedro Jimenez? Are you using Oloroso? Maybe you've got some pork casks in there, some rum casks. And so your wood plan is just what casks are you buying to fill into whiskey? And then if you have like a lot of bourbon casks, are you going to re-racks? Where are you going to take, let's say, five bourbon casks, dump them into a vat and then refill them into a sherry cask. Is that going to be part of your wood plan? So your policy is just how are you using the wood to achieve the, the character that you want? Um, and so for every distillery, it's different. You know, there are some distilleries in Scotland that they only use one wood type because um, that's what, you know, is best for their distillery. There is no right and wrong with wood plants. And that's the beauty. It's just what's right for your distillery. And how many times would a cask get used typically? So typically, you know, after four times, we would not use them again. But to say that cask would be used four times, not every cask is used four times. And then sometimes it might only be in there for, you know, the first two or three years, and then it will be put into another cask. But a cask's life, we wouldn't, after four years, that it wouldn't be, wouldn't be seen again. Um, but especially at Glendronic, we relied so heavily on first fill casks. So once mm -hmm. that cask was used once, it would we could move it to another distillery, but it was pretty much not used at Glendronic again. Okay. So do you ever try to um, like rejuvenate the cask by like um, uh, scraping off the inside char layer and then recharring it and using it again? So I've seen and I've tried some expressions with that done. Um, my experience with them has been it, it's a lot of work uh yeah. and you're you could just buy a new cask um and it, you know it definitely works for some people in some spirits we didn't do it that much uh just the the labor to to do that and and what you gained it was always kind of just seen as better to just buy a new cask okay i, I do have happened? a little mini cask oh. behind me which i do plan to do that too though <laughs> so we'll I can report back on how that works on my on my little mini cask. Do you get a lot of free whiskey working at Brown Foreman? Uh, we had like a, an allowance, like I think most kind of big distilleries do, which was always nice. So I was always 
able to kind of pick up a couple bottles a year of things that I would like. And I would usually spend like, this is our, our 30 year old, something that would be a little bit out of my price point. So I was able to get that on my allowance. So little things like that. It's really nice, really nice to have and momentums of, of where you've worked and projects you've been a part of. Absolutely. Whoa. They yeah. just gave you a bottle of 30 year old whiskey. Yeah. I had a couple thirties and 35. So really nice to have those in the collection. <laughs> yeah. What is, what is your allowance? Per year to change? Uh, kind of varied, I think, depending on uh, your role uh, in the company and how long you had been there. So there was a kind of a, a monetary value based on that. So oh, it, it's yeah. monetary. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you, you would buy it, like, technically out of, out of your allowance kind of deal. So, yeah, it was a good way to do it. Oh, that's cool. What yeah. other perks are there working at Brown Foreman? Well, Brown Foreman is an incredible company. Um, so they have so many kind of sites across the world. So, you know, Jack Daniels, Woodford, Old Forester, uh, Dora, Finlandia, Slain Whiskey. So you've got this at your disposal, all of these resources and opportunities to travel and see them. And one of my most memorable trips was um, going to Slain Castle with a bunch of the, the European new hires for the year so it brought all of the new people who had just been hired at brown foreman and and put them up at the castle uh so we got to try all of brown foreman's products and tour slain castle and see sir alex cunningham's you know the back the back rock garden which is incredible and slain castle for those of you who don't know that's it's in ireland and it's a rock venue it's been you know it's where all if there's a concert that's worth going to it's it's been hosted at at, at slain castle and they've turned what used to be the horse stables into a uh, a distillery so they make irish whiskey there an absolutely beautiful spot and then of course when you get into the u.s you've got jack daniels woodford and then the new old forester distillery uh which is coming back so it's um yeah lots of opportunities to to travel to visit and to grow um very good at promoting you know internally and giving you chances to develop so very very good company to work for yeah i guess is it very easy for you to if you wanted to work at the in the states at jack daniels would that be very easy for you to do with your contacts now uh with contacts i think uh, as a canadian uh without the ability to work in the u.s there might be an issue there <laughs> um, but if i ever figured that out yeah it's very good company made a lot of good contacts so yeah if you if i ever wanted to to have my hand at making whiskey in the u.s or uh, i think think i'd have the right people to talk to <laughs> all right <laughs> okay moving on next question from Madge Nima is keeping the mash recipe simple better than having many different grains and many different roast levels. And so that's a question that I will be kind of focusing on more on in my new role uh, at Driftwood. So in Scotland, we made single malt. So all of our mashes were the same. We just used malt. Um, so there was no, no variation there uh, to be a single malt, but with at Driftwood, um, what I'll be doing is actually using a lot of different malts and a lot of different recipes. And what that's part of is we're finding our character and seeing what works best for our stills and our taste profile. It's great to have those tools in the shed. You'll never regret having those things. And I think once we once we find our niche, we might start focusing in on more. Like I'm a big fan of rye whiskeys, so I can see us using a lot of rye. Um, but when you see what you know, places like Four Roses or um, you. And, you know, some of the big, big companies that actually source out a lot of their whiskey, it's having all of these products available gives you just so many more options of things to make. So I will, I'm a big, a big fan of having, 
you know, different combinations. And then one of the beautiful things about Canadian whiskey tradition is that you, a lot of the times we would in Canada historically distill all of our grains separately. Um, so we're allowed to use enzymes here in Canada or in Scotland, you, you weren't. So an enzyme just helps the yeast uh, break down all of the fermentable sugar. So you get a higher alcohol yield. So we can actually ferment hundred percent corn, hundred percent rye, wheat, and barley. And that means that though my mash bill might just be hundred percent wheat, it means I'd have an inventory of wheat, corn, rye, malt, and I could actually then blend that, um, in the barrel and then re you know put that back to cast kind of deal so you're able to kind of play with your mash bill while it's maturing which i'm i'm really excited to see how that how that works sorry so the you're mashing these things separately or together you can so we'll probably do a little bit of both definitely going to do some where they're where they're mashed together and then literally just because i want to see what it's like i'm going to do a bunch of them separately and then blend them uh, afterwards and see what the differences are so what will a you know 75% rye, you know, uh, then split corn and malt recipe taste like as a mash bill. And then what would that taste like if I just blended them separately and see, you know, is there a difference? And that's something I'm really excited to, to see how that, how that, how that comes along and definitely keep your eyes on Driftwood Spirits because we'll be releasing that in the next three to five years. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I'll have to check back with you and see like yeah, how absolutely. it all went down. Absolutely. But if you have like a corn, malt, rye, uh, whiskey, like what does that classify as? Uh, so it would depend on your percentages. Like, so in, in Canada, we, we must call it whiskey. Um, if it's, I think technically in Canada, you can call anything you do rye. Um, and that might just be a myth. <laughs> um, but so we would, we will be pretty, pretty much uh, very open of, you know, this is, this is what we've been using. Um, you know, we, if we do a single malt, we'll say it's a single malt. If we're doing a blended malt, uh, we would say that we were doing a blended malt. And for our rye whiskeys, you can be uh, rest assured that they will be very high rye. <laughs> the last question from Jason Bellevue. Yes. Favorite grain to use and why? <laughs> so, yeah, that's a great question. I think I might have uh, tipped off in the previous answer there. But, I mean, single malt is incredible. And I love it. And it's so expressive. And they're all... Every, you know, malt uh, released by any distillery is going to be so unique and have so much character. But as a Canadian, uh, kind of growing up with, you know, the Canadian folklore and all of that, I'm very drawn, drawn to rye whiskeys. Um, and I think just with, you know, Canadian whiskey maybe historically doesn't have the best uh, reputation in the world. But, you know, Northern Harvest did win, you know, Jim Murray's. That's a rye whiskey, best whiskey of the year. Alberta Premium just did it again. Those of you that like Whistle Pig will know that that's Canadian rye whiskey. Uh, so I just, I want to play with rye a lot more. I just think there's a, a lot there and it's a very, very delicious uh, uh, product. So yeah, really excited to play with, with rye. Have you had any trouble uh, mashing with the rye? Uh, not yet. So it's going to be definitely a, definitely a battle. <laughs> it's a, you have to... Definitely not as efficient and easy as just is full malt. So it's um, lots of playing. What we're looking at doing at Driftwood is actually getting some some uh, mash ton fermenters so we can ferment on grain so that we don't have to worry about running off. So it's kind of designing our equipment to work best for what we want to do. Uh, so I'm hoping in the next year and a bit we'll have some open top fermenters that are mash, mash ton slash fermenters. So you'll definitely have to come by and check those out. Okay. 
So these fermenters that you're fermenting on the grain, so you're also distilling on the grain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How does that work though? Because isn't that like a, there's like a lot of solid material. So is it very difficult to transfer from the fermenter into the still? Is it get clogged? It can be. Yeah. There's a couple of different types of pumps that you can use um, that can aid with it. So if uh, some of the bigger breweries, like at Driftwood, we have it's called Pondorf pump. So it can pump literally anything uh, anywhere. And so if you use one of those, what it does is it's actually like a hammer almost, and it's just going like this and pushing pushing the material, whether it be solid or liquid, uh, through your, through your plumbing. Um, so it can be done. Um, and then, yeah, if we have to look at other ways, then you be sure that I will <laughs> to make sure that we get it into the still. Okay. That's very cool. And then yeah. when you're distilling on the grain and you're disposing of the waste, cause yeah. you've got the grain and the pot ale mixed together, so it's very watery. So do you have to separate out the solids uh, and the liquid when you're as of, getting rid of it? As of right now, no. We've got the spent spent grain silos where all of it would be going to anyway. Uh, so it's just going to the same spot to be then moved off site and treated. Okay. So yeah. is it very dry though, or is it very 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 liquidy? Very liquidy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But luckily, we'll, we have the benefit too of uh, going into the same silos that our our brewery does. Uh, so they're their bed's a little, like quite a bit drier, obviously, because it's not soaked with pot ale. Oh, I uh, see. So yeah, the water kind of can absorb in there. Okay. Yeah. All right. And what is your um, title uh, at Driftwood now? Uh, I've got to pick up myself. So it's a <laughs> head of spirit creation. Uh, um, so yeah, just kind of, <laughs> yeah. So we'll be doing a lot of things. So I think it's going to be a little bit more than just uh, distilling and blending. We're going to be going, uh, you know, we will have lemoncellos, we will do, you know, Ooh. fruited spirits, we'll have, yeah, a lot, a lot of different styles of spirit. And then, you know, the beauty about not having any, you know, kind of rules and regulation, you know, single malt, if you want to be Scotch whiskey, you have to follow certain rules to be Scotch whiskey. But we're starting a brand new distillery here in Canada, where if we want to make gin, if we want to make spirits using botanicals that no one's used, I think, if you look at empirical, uh, the distillery in Denmark, they're like what with what they're doing and they're just kind of creating their own new categories, very much in the similar boat of it's like if we find something that we want to make or if I find a botanical that I'm passionate about after doing a micro distillation and if we want to release a product, we'll do that. So it's it's just a open canvas essentially of exploring flavor and the possibilities and and just using all of the tools that we have. We've got this wonderful new brewery. We've got a sour beer program. We've got an aged beer program and now this distillery. So how can we let, you know, all of this work together, but then how can we use each other as well? And what can I learn from the brewery and the sour program and the barrel age program? And what can they learn from me? So it's going to be a very yeah collaborative effort in tying all of it in together. And okay. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today, Brendan. Bye.